know every once in a while it's good to just stop and reflect on all that God has done for you. And then stop and worship him because of his goodness. And just thank him for being God. Sometimes it's good to just pause and do that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, it's a pleasure and an honor again to be before you. I love my Epiphany family and... Uh, always privileged when I have the opportunity to share God's word before you. Why don't we stand uh, so we can read God's word and jump on into this text. Open your Bibles to Matthew, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse one. Matthew chapter four, beginning at verse one. If you're there, say amen. If you need some more time, say hold on. Okay. Some people were unsure if they needed some more time. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, it's up on the screen, so I'm going to get us started. Verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 11. You guys jump in, and then uh, we will finish together at verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Keep reading. Amen. I submit our title for this morning, Mimicking the Master. Mimicking the Master. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful and thankful that we get the opportunity to read your word, to have your word, that you give us your spirit so that we can understand your word, that you might teach us how to live and how to please you. So each and every time we open our words, that should be the intention of our heart is to get to know our God better so that we might know how to live and how to please you. Father, we pray this day that your name would be glorified as we open your word, as your word is proclaimed, that your people would be edified by it, that our lives, our hearts, and our minds would forever be changed and transformed to the glory of the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So last year, we, uh, me and my wife had the privilege at uh, the beginning of last summer to uh, take all of our kids... Um, to Disney World. Uh, it's one of those trips that, you know, as parents, you look forward to. That's almost like the, you know, that's the place that, that, you're, that you really want to take your, if you don't take them anywhere else in their lives, when they're kids, you want to have taken them to Disney World at least once, if possible, because Disney World is almost as expensive as salvation. <laughs> Was that heresy? Did I just say heresy? But, but so, so, you know, we, we prepared this trip. We were really excited. They, they had no clue that we were going. We, we surprised them the morning of that we were supposed to be leaving, uh, that, that they were going. So obviously uh, they, they were really excited. We get down there. You know, we enjoy a fun day uh, at, at Walt Disney uh, Park at Magic Kingdom. And we, we go on all, the, all these rides. By the end of the day, we had made our, our, ourselves or made our way over to the other side of the park uh, and there was a particular ride that we were about to get on. But before you get on the ride, they have these little shows sometimes that are going on out in front of the ride uh, with the characters that are dressed up in character. And they're, they're engaging all the families and all the kids. And there was this Pirates of the Caribbean ride, 
right? So there's somebody dressed up like Jack Sparrow out there, and they're doing all these scenes, jumping around, and sword fights, and, and all of those great things. So, you know, my kids run to the front of the crowd, and my young daughter, Layla, she's the one who will push everybody out the way to get to the front. She has no concept of personal space or uh, what's appropriate. And so she pushed her way to the front, and she was so excited. So, you know, I'm watching my kids have a great time. And so after the show ends, we decide, okay, let's go on this Pirates of the Caribbean ride. We're going to have a great time. They're going to get to see all these fantastic pirates. Um, but the thing about my, my, my six-year-old, my middle child, uh, Layla, is that she is afraid of everything. <laughs> when I say everything, I mean everything. Like, so she'll watch a movie 50 times, and then on the 51st time, she'll be deathly afraid of it and never want to watch it again, right? And so we go into, we get onto the ride, and we're starting to go through the ride. And as soon as we get on these little boat things that kind of take you, you know, the little boats you get onto, it got the little water trail that takes you around, and you see the different scenes. And as soon as we got onto the boat, I knew that this was not a good idea. Because before me, all I could see was darkness. And if there's anything that she's afraid of in this world, it's darkness. And so we're going through this ride. And as soon as we hit the darkness, she begins to get anxious. She's grabbing and pulling. And at this point, there's no way off of the ride. We are stuck on this ride. And now I immediately feel like a terrible parent for not thinking ahead and knowing that my child was gonna be deathly afraid of what was about to happen. And so we get it through, and this is not really a children's ride like I thought it was. It's a little dark, and there's some screaming, and there's fire, and there's scary pirates in there jumping around. I mean, this really is not for six-year-olds, but for some reason, it's in Magic Kingdom. And so my daughter literally begins screaming and wailing at the top of her lungs. And I felt so terrible. Luckily enough, she was sitting next to me. And so I grabbed her and I held her closely. And I took her head and I put it into my chest and covered her eyes with my hand so that she wouldn't have to experience the difficulty and the turmoil of what she was going through at the moment. Now, I thought to myself, surely my child would embrace me as I tried to protect her. But she did the exact opposite. She pulled my hands away, continued to look at the scenes, and continued to scream out even more. And so I'm trying to protect her, hold her, and now I'm getting frustrated because I'm like, can't you see what I'm trying to do for you? And for some reason, you keep fighting against me. And, and one of the funniest things that she said, I couldn't laugh at the moment. I can look back and laugh now. I said, Layla, if you're so afraid, why do you keep trying to pull my hands away? And she said, I can't help it. I have to look. Despite all of her fear, all of her anxiety and what she was going through, the temptation to not look was too great for her. The fact that the temptation was there for her meant that she had to engage. Isn't that us sometimes? Temptation comes into your life and it's just too strong for you to not embrace it. The very fact that temptation is at your front door for you means that you have to engage. You feel powerless. You feel overwhelmed by it. Unfortunately for the Christian, many times, that's what it's like when we wrestle with sin. The sin, the temptation to sin is so great, it has so latched itself to our identity and who we are that we can't not look away. So we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 4, and the, here Matthew is writing, giving a picture of what God shows us through the life of Jesus Christ as it relates to fighting the battle against temptation and what we can do to experience success that leads to godly obedience. So my first and only point this morning is God tests his people to see if they will keep his commandments. God tests his people to see if they will keep his commandments. Now, 
Before we even jump into verse 1 of chapter 4, a powerful scene has just taken place at the end of Matthew chapter 3. Jesus has gone uh, to where John the Baptist has been baptizing people, and he himself gets baptized. And this is a powerful scene in Scripture because the Bible tells us that as he was being baptized, the Spirit of God descends upon him, and then a voice from heaven cries out, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Some translations add that it says, listen to him. There is this great and awesome scene where we see God himself, God the Father, confirming and affirming the person of Jesus Christ at his baptism before his ministry even begins. And so you can imagine this being a very emotional high. I know that it would be a, an emotional high for me if I experienced just the spiritual presence of God in such a way where I knew and those around me who were watching and could hear knew that I was being directly affirmed by God himself. I can't imagine what that would be like. We already exalt our spiritual experiences on a pedestal. Imagine if there was a voice from heaven calling out, that's my beloved son. That is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. But it's interesting that the very next sentence after this affirmation from God the Father, look with me at verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus coming off of this, this spiritual high in some ways, this affirmingness of God to him about who he was and what he had come to do and the fact that people should listen to his message and immediately God sends him into a test. Have you ever been there in your life where you've experienced the presence of God, the hand of God at work, where you were ready to get on mission, ready to serve the Lord, and immediately you were thrown into a test? Immediately, you were put into a position where you now had to apply the very thing that God had called you to do in obedience. So here, it's interesting that the Bible says that he was led up by the Spirit, that God himself was the one who was leading him into this test. Now, don't get confused. The Bible says that he was tempted by the devil because James chapter 1 lets us know that God does not tempt us to sin. It says that, matter of fact, the Bible says that we are not, we are, sin does not stem from any outside influence. See, here Matthew is saying that the devil is the one who initiates the tempting of Jesus, but the sinning that happens as a result of the temptation is placed on the individual. See, James chapter 1 says that there is no outside influence that causes you to sin. They can only tempt you. However, sin takes place when you are enticed away by your own desires. That means that even though temptation is present, temptation does not cause you to sin. And there is no outside influence that can cause you to sin. When you sin, it's on you. Because what sin communicates is that you have now aligned your desires and your passions with the very thing that you're being tempted by. So the, the Bible tells us, Matthew writes, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Luke has this same account in Luke chapter 4, and he says that he was led up full of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, don't overlook that word wilderness too quickly, because what we have here is a, a, a concept that will point Jesus' entire temptation experience back to the wilderness of the children of Israel as they were with God and he was testing them over their 40 years. We'll see as we continue to move forward, but Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted means to try to entice, to try to entice to sin or to turn one's heart from God or to turn one's obedience from following God. But the, the flip side of that, this word can actually mean to test. It's a different side of the same coin. 
where on one hand, the enemy might try to tempt you to sin, God in his goodness will use that tempting as a way to test you and try your obedience to him. Not for sin, but to prove your obedience. I don't know about anybody else, but in a classroom, if you're learning a bunch of information, the only way to tell whether or not you've actually learned anything is to take a test. And the test will illustrate how much you actually know. So I can teach you all day long that one plus one equals two, even though I've seen some math problems recently that said it's something different than that. But one plus one equals two. I can teach you the concepts of addition all day long, but if I don't give you an opportunity on your own to try to apply what I've taught you, you'll never know whether or not you actually know the concepts of what you've been taught. And so while the enemy may try to tempt you to disobey God, God himself will use the same experience to produce character. That's why it says, count it all joy, brothers, when you experience various trials. The testing of your faith will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so here Jesus is being tempted on one hand by the Spirit and tested on the other by God. And it's interesting that that word tempting, the same word that's used in the next verse to describe a characteristic of who the devil is, is kind of indicative of pointing to what he's like and what he does. His name, the devil, actually means accuser or slanderer. And the, the purpose of, his, of what he does is to tempt you to sin against God and draw your heart away from him so that he can slander and accuse you before God. See, God, they're unworthy. See, God, they don't really love you. See, God, there's no way you can accept them in your perfect holiness because they're imperfect. The very thing that he wants to do is to tempt you to sin so that he can accuse you constantly before God and constantly in your heart that you're unworthy. Now, here's the truth of the matter. You are unworthy. That's the beauty of passages like this where we see the perfection of Jesus Christ even in the midst of temptation is that you are unworthy. That's the gospel message loud and clear. You are unworthy. There is nothing that you have done or will ever do that will earn you the right to stand before the presence of a holy God but God. And so we see Jesus entering into this wilderness preparing to be tempted uh, by the devil. Then verse 2 says that after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, another reference back to Israel's time in the wilderness, it says that he was hungry. Now, that, you might say, well, of course he was hungry. But this points to the beautiful, beautiful doctrine of Jesus' humanity. That God himself got hungry. That Jesus, in the midst of his temptation, was vulnerable. Now, I love food. I love food. Good food, not all food, good food. I've never fasted 40 days and 40 nights. I struggle with the solemn assembly of one week that we do in January. And when I'm hungry, I, I, I very much relate to that Snickers commercial. I get hangry. I'm angry at people. I'm a little bit irritable. I'm more prone to sin because I'm hungry. There's something about being hungry that just puts you in a bad mood. Now, stretch that out a little bit. You haven't just missed an afternoon's meal. You haven't eaten for 40 days, which is about the length of time that you can go without destroying or breaking down your body permanently is about 40 days. So when we hear that the Bible proclaims that Jesus 
was hungry, we know that Jesus was in a vulnerable state at the point of his temptation. And notice that it says in the next verse that it was then that the tempter approached him. See, the, the enemy didn't approach him in his strength. The enemy approached him in his weakness. The enemy approached him in his vulnerability. The enemy approached him when he was most likely to compromise. Have you ever found yourself there before? Where you've been in a vulnerable state because life has beaten you down? Because family members have caused conflict between you? Because you've been left by a loved one? Something that you planned on happening just went spiral and out of control. And then the enemy shows up. He's, he says, I, I don't want to catch you when you're on this spiritual high, worshiping God, in community with God's people, regularly spending time in his word. I want to hit you when you're hurting. When you're broken. I, I want to. Get you when you're tired, when you've been working so long without any God-glorifying rest. I want to hit you there. So it says that Jesus was, he was hungry. He was vulnerable. In the enemy's mind, he was ripe for compromise. And then the tempter approached him. Here Jesus is being tested in his devotion to God. See, this, this, this right here is a testing of whether or not Jesus was really devoted to God in his mission. And we would say, well, Jesus was God. Why would he have to be tested in his devotion? Well, Jesus, for his first time, was experiencing life as a human being, as a man. He had never been a man before his time now. And now as a man, he has to prove himself obedient he didn't stop being God but in his additional nature he had to prove his obedience that's why Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says that although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered Jesus himself as a man had to be tested by God in suffering to prove his obedience I don't know if you heard that, but the most potent way to test your obedience is through suffering. See, I, I know we look at suffering as a, a bad thing that God wouldn't allow. This is not God's will for our life. Suffering causes us to back up and say that there is something wrong here because I'm suffering. We don't view suffering as an act of God for our benefit. But that's exactly what it is. Suffering proves your obedience, which draws you closer to God and strengthens your resolve in God. And that's what he uses to grow us. He learned obedience through suffering. It says the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, it's interesting, you know, because the, the enemy is, he's not dumb. I'll put it that way. Ephesians chapter 6 to, tells us to be aware of his schemes. Because he's watching and waiting and trying to figure out what your weaknesses are. Because once he finds out what your weaknesses are, he knows how to apply pressure right there. I uh, oftentimes watch Batman with my son. Um, for those that know him, he doesn't wear the cape anymore. But he still regularly watches Batman. And there's, there's a movie that he has about the Justice League, you know, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, and, and all those characters. It's called Justice League Trapped in Time. And there is a character on that movie called Karate Kid. And Karate Kid's primary strength is that when he looks at his opponent or when he looks at an obstacle, he can pinpoint the exact weakness so that he knows exactly where to hit it. And as soon as he hits it, it's destroyed. And that's what the enemy does. 
He knows how to watch you and assess your life and assess your shortcomings, assess your insecurities, assess your places of greatest compromise. And that's where he's most likely to strike. Here he comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's not by accident that the Bible says that Jesus was hungry and the verse thing that the enemy brings up to him is bread. His need to eat something. Now, I know you're thinking here when you think of the enemy that the enemy comes right out and he tells you that he's the enemy. And he tries to tell you that he wants you to compromise against God and he doesn't want you to obey what God has for you and walk in the will of God. But I don't believe that that's how the enemy works. See, this right here, when he says, if you are the son of God, he's not calling into question the deity of Jesus. See, he's, he's maneuvering himself in a position to get Jesus to compromise, but he's doing it, I believe, almost in some ways like a friend. Jesus, man, you're the son of God. You can eat some bread. It's, it's not that big deal, Jesus. Why would... The father want you to be hungry. You are God. These stones have to obey your commands. You can eat. Man, listen, I'll, I'll eat one with you. <laughs> you know, oftentimes when the enemy comes before you to tempt you, it's not with a direct lie. He, he wants to convince you with just a little bit so that you can sit back and, and then begin to wonder. You know what? I can see that. That makes some sense. And then as your mind begins to wander, you begin to compromise. Because he immediately has gotten you to think through whether or not full obedience or partial obedience is actually obedience. He doesn't get you to turn your back fully against God. But he gets you to believe that partial obedience is enough. So here he's trying to get Jesus to compromise because he knows that if he can get Jesus to compromise against the will of God, then he'll disqualify his ministry as the sinless savior of the world. Jesus, just eat a little bit of bread. Jesus, knowing what the enemy is doing, says, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus knows that even though you might have a whole lot of truth, if there's just a little bit of lie, then that's enough to get him to disobey. See, that, that's oftentimes what makes it so difficult for us when we're compromising and when we're weak is that we look at all of the truth that's surrounding the lie to make ourselves feel better about disobedience. I, I used to work at Wells Fargo Bank and oftentimes we would come across fake money. And fake money is easy to spot if you just give me one dollar bill. I dealt with money every day so it's easy to feel it. You can feel the difference. With really, really good money you can, you can Look at it and not be able to know, but you can always feel the difference. Now, I'll tell you what's more difficult. It's more difficult to spot fake money if there's a whole lot of it and you just run it through the counter. Oftentimes, we would do that when we got a large sum of money in. We got these big bags from, uh, from the stores around us. We would just run it through the counter, and then we would strap it and put it away because it would take too much time to individually count every bill. 
And so it's easy to slip in a little bit of falsehood when there's a whole lot of truth. Because typically when we see a whole lot of truth, we're not careful and aware of the possibility of falsehood. And that's what the enemy does. He tries to get you to focus on the truth of what he's saying without really investigating the falsehood. And so Jesus tells him, man, you can't live by bread alone. Man can't do that. But every word that comes from the mouth of God, he here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, chapter 8, verse 3, it says, he humbled you. This is Moses speaking to uh, the people of Israel as he's addressing them before they go into the promised land. Matter of fact, all of the scripture that Jesus quotes comes from the beginning chapters of Deuteronomy where Moses is addressing the people before they go into the promised land. He says, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. And then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now listen to what he says, what he sandwiches that verse in between of. In verse 2, he says, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey, these 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. Then in verse 4, he says, your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. What Jesus is quoting here is this reality where God's, God is letting us know that we have to be careful not to compromise our spiritual obedience for physical satisfaction. He said, Jesus, you're, you're hungry. Go ahead and eat. Yeah, but eating would cause me to disobey God. Which is more important to you? Will you tell yourself that God is more concerned that you don't go hungry or that you obey? It's not only that, but here in these passages, Moses is reminding the people of God that he provided everything that they would need on their journey. He says, don't forget when you were in that wilderness who took care of you. Don't forget that your clothes over 40 years did not get worn out and your shoes did not get any holes in them. And you're worried about a little bit of hunger. And so God in his providence and in his goodness provided for them even bread as they complained about that. And Jesus is saying here, he's saying, you, you, you're not going to catch me on that. He says, I, I know I'm hungry right now, but it's God's will for me to be hungry right now. And to not be hungry and satisfy my physical needs would go against the will of God. And I'm more committed to the will of my father than any physical need that I'll ever have. Because to go ahead and to eat right now would mean that I don't trust him to provide. It would mean that I don't trust him to take care of me. It's more than about the bread. It's about what I believe to be true about God. And whether or not I'm willing to sacrifice my personal appetites in order to please him. It says then that the devil, the accuser, took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, some 300 or 450 feet in the air. And then it says that he said to him, if you are the son of God, come on, Jesus, man, you know you're the son of God. Throw yourself down, for it is written. Notice what he does there. He said, okay, I can't get you with physical appetite. I see you're going to use the Bible. Guess what? I'll come on your plane. I'm going to use the Bible too. Everybody who's spouting the Bible... See, we, we've got a direct example of Satan himself quoting scripture to try to get you to disobey God. Satan himself knows the word of God sometimes better than we do. 
Now, what would have happened if Jesus wasn't familiar with these verses? What would have been his response? Had he not known what God meant when he said what he said in Psalm chapter 91. So Satan says, man, doesn't it say in your Bible, the one that you wrote, Doesn't it say he will give his angels orders concerning you? Doesn't it say that they will support you with your hands, with their hands, so that they, you will not strike your foot against a stone? It's like, Jesus, you're the son of God. It's like you can throw yourself off this temple. There's, listen, the Bible promises that God won't let anything happen to you if you do this. Why not just skip the cross and get people to see this miraculous event and then they'll follow you? That's what he's trying to do. He's saying, he's saying, why go through the agony of the cross to get people to follow you when all you have to do is throw yourself from the temple and have your angel save you? Everybody will see and that they will know that you are the Messiah. The one who is to come, and they will follow you. But you won't have to go to the cross to do it. There's a way for you to still obey God, or partially obey God, without fully obeying God, to satisfy your purposes. You want people to follow you? I can get you to do that without going to the cross. That's what he's trying to do. He's, he's saying, just, just make a marvelous display. He says that the power, the deity, the use of your attributes that you set aside from Philippians chapter 2. He said, go ahead and make use of it right now. It's not a big deal. And Jesus responds and again quotes Deuteronomy in chapter 6. And he says, do not test the Lord your God. The scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. Moses there is referring to an incident over in Exodus chapter 17 where the people got thirsty. And so they began to complain and they began to question whether or not God was with them. Man, I can't believe y'all brought us out here in this wilderness. We had it better in Egypt. Even though we were enslaved, we at least knew we were going to have food to eat and water to drink. Man, I'm willing to bet that God's not even here right now. If your God was really here, he wouldn't let us be thirsty. And the Bible says that God told Moses to go and strike a rock and that water would come out of the rock. But then God called, told him to call that place Massa because it was a reminder that there at that place, the people complained against God and tested him. So here Jesus is, is reminding us that as, as, as people, when it comes to obeying God, we don't try to manipulate God by putting ourselves in situations to try to force his hand to respond in a particular way. He said, man, to, to throw myself off of this temple pinnacle would mean that I would be testing God in a way that assumes that I can control what he does. It asserts in my mind that I have some sort of power over God to manipulate what he's going to do based on what I want him to do. So here Jesus is like, man, I'm not cut for that right now. It's interesting though in Malachi chapter 10 that God through his prophet tells the people to test him. There are plenty of incidences in scripture where the, the Bible gives a negative account of God or, or the people testing God in a way that assumes his character is deficient. And yet there are also instances where God invites us to test him so that we might know more about his character. So the Bible isn't telling us not to test God. 
But the Bible is telling us and warning us not to test God in a way that assumes deficiency in what he's able to do and what he's like. So Jesus says, do not test the Lord your God. Then he gets down to verse 8 and it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. The account in Luke chapter 4 says that he tells Jesus and that he had the authority to give these kingdoms to whom he wanted to. There is a sense where scripture communicates that these kingdoms presently are Satan's. That's why it calls him the God of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the prince of this world in John chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 2. And so there is this sense where Satan is ruling in the world. However, he's still not the ultimate ruler of the world. See, this, this, this last and final test is very reminiscent of how he engaged Eve in the garden. What did he tell Eve? He said, he said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will be like God. What she failed to realize in that moment was that she was already like God. There was nothing that she could do to be more like God than the like Godness that he had already created her with. Here, he says to Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world and all their splendor. And Jesus already knew I already have that. They already belong to me. And so he responds to the enemy by saying, go away, Satan, or get thee behind me, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This was a reminder of what Moses told the people before they got into the land. He said, I know when you get into this land, you're going to see some stuff. You're going to be reminded of everything that you learned back in Egypt, but I'm warning you right now, don't get in here with these Canaanites and start fooling around with their gods. He said, your heart belongs to God and God alone. When you get in there, you better worship God and God alone. Don't tell me that they convinced you or they tricked you. Don't tell me about how you like their worship music and you enjoy their preaching. When you get into this land, don't forget who you belong to. Sounds reminiscent of a speech my mom used to give us when we used to go out to the store. And before we would get there, she would say, don't you get out here and act a fool in public because then I'm going to beat you in public and remind you who you belong to. But, it, but it's, it's interesting here as we look at this entire temptation experience and how reminiscent it is to his temptation with Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Look, the first thing that he did was he appealed to their appetite. Their physical appetite. Look at that fruit. Don't it look good? It looks like it tastes good. Jesus, I see that you're hungry. Why don't you just go ahead and eat some bread? Not only does he appeal to their physical appetite, but he appeals to the desire for personal gain. He says, that if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. You get something out of this. Jesus, if you jump from the pinnacle, people will follow you. And you will be their leader. But not only that, he's also given them an easy path to power or glory. Jesus, if you take these, if you worship me, you can have these kingdoms. Eve, eat this fruit. And man, you'll be like God. You'll know that God ain't holding out. There's nothing. You'll, you'll be like God in every way. It's interesting that we as humanity still fall into these traps. That's why John writes in 1 John chapter 2, he says that there's a struggle when it comes to temptation with humanity. Because they're always after the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. There's nothing new. With Eve, Adam, I mean, the, the enemy came to her and said, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, Pride of life, and she took the bait. 
He tried the same thing here with Jesus. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And I guarantee you he's doing the same thing with you today. What is it that your flesh wants today? What is it that your eyes see that you can't turn away from? What is it that you think you should have that you believe belongs to you and you're willing to get it at all costs? I know there's a big fight coming up this weekend. Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. I know most of the guys know what I'm talking about. I'm not a huge boxing fan, but some of the, uh, ladies, please forgive me. I heard the grumbling just then, and my spirit said, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Amen. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. The ladies know what I'm talking about, too. Amen, somebody. Now, I'm not a huge, huge boxing fan. I used to follow it a little bit uh, back, you know, when Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield were fighting. And, you know, I, I love the old footage of Sugar Ray Leonard and, uh, and some of those guys. But, you know, I, I, I will, I, I don't like Floyd Mayweather too much. I'm not a huge fan of the, his, but I will give him this. He's probably the greatest defensive boxer in all of history. Whether you want to admit it or not. If you watch the flurry of punches and how he makes people miss, it's astounding. I mean, there's, there's one video that I saw. Man, this guy must have been throwing punches like, like probably 45 seconds with Mayweather trapped in a corner with nowhere to go. And I don't think he landed one punch. I mean, the smooth shoulder dip, the duck, the twist. I mean... Bananas. But, but, but listen, that's what the life of the believer should look like. You, you, need to know, you, know, you need to know how to dip some stuff. You need to know how to duck some stuff. You need to know how to sidestep some stuff. You, you know why? Because too many of us trust our own power in engaging the enemy. But notice what Jesus says here in chapter 10. It says that he told Satan to go away, to get behind him. And then after multiple advances by the enemy and Jesus standing on the word of God, not only using that to remind Satan of what God's word says, but also to remind himself of why he needs to remain obedient. The Bible says in verse 11 that the devil left him. That, that's why it's, it's key that we remember that James chapter 4 says, if you resist him, he will flee you. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 that your enemy, the devil, is roaming around like a roaring lion, waiting to see who he can devour. And the very next words after that are resist him. There is, there is power in resistance. Too many of us are trying to engage the devil and beat him at his own game. And some of y'all need to get on your Floyd Mayweather ministry and start dipping and dodging and resisting the advances of the enemy. But, 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 but listen, don't, don't, don't miss this. Every interaction that Jesus had with the enemy in this temptation experience, his response was rooted in the word of God. He didn't say one word to him that was outside of quoting God's word back to him to let him know who was in control. That means one thing, that you need to know your word. That's a Psalm 119 Hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against it. The reason why you often sin is because you don't know the word of God well enough. You might be looking at this passage, and then I'm going to sit down right, at, right after this. But you might be looking at this passage and saying, well, Pastor Kurt, I hear you. I see Jesus resisting the advances of the enemy but you know what he he's God of course he can do it 
of course he can do it. But let, 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 let me tell you something. If Jesus can do it because he was God, then how dare you say that you can't do it when God himself is living in you? The enemy is not powerful enough to make you sin when the spirit of God is in you. That's why Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, if you walk by the spirit, you absolutely will not satisfy the desires of your flesh. And so as believers, we have to take seriously God's word to know him. To understand what his word says and do the hard work of obedience so that we might know how to live and know how to please him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful that even when we fall short, you still are gracious to forgive us. Even when we don't do it perfectly, God, you are still merciful in receiving us as sons and daughters. Not because we've earned it or because we deserve it, but because Christ has deserved it. Because Christ has earned it. Because Jesus resisted when he was tempted in the wilderness. Because Jesus was resisted when people tried to crown him as their king before it was his time. Jesus resisted Peter when he tried to convince him that he didn't have to go to the cross. Jesus resisted as he wrestled with anxiety in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus resisted as he experienced the agony of the cross because he resisted. He earned the right to get up from the grave. And now we are hidden in him. And you have given us the power of the spirit that we can obey. And we can follow you in everything that we do. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us great confidence, not in our own strength, not in our own power, not in our own wisdom, but in the power, strength, and the wisdom of our God. May your word hold us firm. And keep our feet from swaying to the right or to the left. So that when you test us, God, we may prove to be your disciples. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.